Hi, and welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and today I'm joined by security experts who will introduce themselves. And also, since Benjamin Franklin thinks that distrust and caution are the parents of security, tell us what or who do you think the parents of security should be if you disagree with Benjamin Franklin? All right, this is Mike, and I think the parents should be how about discussed with the current procedures and a desire to improve them and also maybe a sense of optimism that we can actually secure these things. Hi, this is Killian. And I think uh, the parents of security might be, I don't know, let's go with uh, Ravest, Shamir, and Adelman, founders of RSA. I was being very literal. I like that. My name is Forrest, and I am actually going to be a rebel here and say that Benjamin Franklin may have been right. And distrust and caution may actually be the parents of security. That's a cop out for us. You know <laughs> it, it. Really is. it really is a cop out. <laughs> it's a good cop out, but it's right. still a cop out. So I ask about the parents of security because lately the news cycles have they've served up what feels like warnings on all layers of security in it. It just feels better to have the idea of a parent around, even though we're all grown up adults. <laughs> So first, the U.S. CERT team recommends that sysadmins disable a protocol that's about 30 years old, SMB version 1, and to block all SMB traffic as a precaution. And it's something that Microsoft has been warning about as well. If you're a sysadmin, what are some precautions of disabling and your overall thoughts on this announcement? Well, I mean, it's 30 years old. Do the uh, 80s and 90s kids have nostalgia for SMB1 now? Is that why we're keeping it around? It's like, you know, Transformers and SMB1. Those are the, you know, the two things that we grew up on. So like only 90s kids will remember SMB1 like that kind of thing. Cowabunga, dude. I think we're uh, we're pretty hip with the kids now and the memes. So (laughs) (laughs) if you had a meme, your face would be on it and your expression. Killian's actually wearing a hoodie. He's pretty close to being able to do the Kermit one. That's nice. I mean, really, though, with with SMB1, I am just absolutely staggered that it's still around, Uh, just generally speaking. I know Microsoft had, uh, in some of the newer versions of Windows, they've been disabling it by default or making it like a hidden optional feature to turn on. But I can't believe anybody's bothered to keep that around for this long. So there's this thing about, like... Oh, there's power in defaults and we should have security by default because, you know, whatever set up by default, people sort of just never touch because they just want things to work. And I feel like this is like the horrible power of defaults where these things were turned on and they've just never been turned off because to go in and like change it and you don't know like if there's a dependency or something. It reminds me a lot of all of the like the cipher and the different versions of SSL where there's these websites that still you can connect to with SSL v3, which there's no reason to. It's been deprecated for decades. <laughs> like the same sort of situation. Like, but it's still just in there because no one went in and like commented out these like three lines in a file and restarted the server. Actually, I was going to bring up that exact point, and I, I mean, I personally in my career have dealt with situations like that where it's even come up in security meetings. In in my experience, that people go, "Hey, why is this turned on? It's really really bad." And they go, "Well, somebody out there might still need it." Then that's the question. Is I mean. Do you really want to do business with somebody who's still running Windows Millennium Edition with Internet Explorer 3 or I don't know what even came on at the back then? You're 
you know, fashionable and fashion forward, but not every, <laughs> not everyone is as cool as you, Killian. That's the burden I, I have to live with. Well, what I think happens, and I think the systemic way of dealing with this is virtualization because you're saying like, oh, this Windows ME machine and like, do you want to deal with them? But what I find a lot of times is, oh, that's the Windows ME machine that runs the uh, cardboard cutter that makes our specialized boxes that's in the factory floor and has been running for, you know, a decade straight. And no one knows, like, the original programmer passed away. And so we can't touch it. (laughs) So, you know, the solution in a lot of those cases is like, well, we could virtualize it. And this will at least, like, tunnel the traffic in a way that you can deal with it, but keep that stuff around. And I think that's... It's almost like sysadmin archiving or archaeology, sysadmin archaeology of like all these layers that you're like digging through of virtualization and eventually everything will run on a nano chip and it'll be 40 levels of virtualization. I have a question. So they're about just the pros and cons of making vulnerability announcements. So I came across an announcement that Oracle had 270 vulnerabilities that they patched. And I wonder if that's like a good way to measure your success of what you've done. Is it just kind of like a marketing thing? And then then they compare the number of vulnerabilities year to year. It doesn't really make sense if you don't identify exactly what technologies they're trying out or ones that are obsolete and on their way out. Why do even organizations make those announcements? I could totally see how you would think that, you know, putting out these vulnerabilities and like explaining them, you know, just gives like ammunition to like attackers in some way. But I think that, you know, A, these are kind of like compiled after they've been known for a little while and there's been time for them to already kind of like start tackling them, you know, internally. But also it's just like great for transparency. You know what I mean? I think it's really important that these companies can like show that they're working on these security issues and being upfront about them. I think that builds a lot of trust in brands. And I think that that's really important from a security standpoint. So we have the Troy Hunt web security fundamentals. And one aspect of that, like one of the lessons is that we try to convey to consumers, just like anybody, is that, oh, you should accept the updates. Like when your phone asks to update or your computer asks to update, even if you don't like it, you should update. And that's a lot of times because there's security stuff in it. I feel this is like the enterprise, you know, version of that, that a lot of this is communication to their customers and prospects about like, oh, we're, we're attentive to security issues. We, we are patching things. And to be able to put out, here's the products, here's the vulnerability to let people make an assessment on their own. Like, oh, this is a very important thing or this applies to us or it doesn't apply to us because we're running this in this different sort of way. So I think it's good for all those. I don't focus too much on the individual numbers because it all varies, but it's good to see. It's good to see more communication and more of these sort of things put out. As an observer of kind of, of security in general, Mike or Forrest, do we think that as these numbers come out, it's representative of, of anything? Like the more vulnerabilities we see, could we perhaps extrapolate that either people are doing more research into it or the coding practices are getting better or worse? Or am I trying to put meaning around something that doesn't really exist? I'm just curious what you guys think. I personally think there just might be so many variables involved that it's kind of tough to, I think you get into a lot of like apples to oranges kind of comparisons there. And it's, and it's tough to really kind of put them together. Do you know what I mean? The, you know, the, the type of vulnerabilities you're talking about one year, you might be getting, again, apples to oranges, you know, the next year that might be equivalent to five. And the number is up by, I don't know, 50%. And, it, you know, the, it, the number is just, 
with the variables involved, I'm not sure if I'm making sense here, but with the variables involved, I just don't know if they're really comparable or you can count on them being comparable. No, that's, I mean, that's kind of exactly what I was getting towards. And I think that might be even the heart of Cindy's questions is why do we bother having these rankings like the most vulnerabilities a company patched in a year if the answer is, well, it's meaningless. They could have had one vulnerability and it could have been the worst thing ever. Yeah. Probably doesn't hurt to track, but yeah, I, I don't know if there's a lot of value in it. And there's a Gmail phishing attack where the attacker sends an email to someone's Gmail and that email might come from someone you know who had their account hacked. And then in the email, it might look like an image of an attachment you might recognize from the sender. But when you click on the image, it forwards you to sign in again. And then if you're mindlessly signing in, that's when you're exposing yourself. And so there was on Hacker News, there was a sysadmin that uses Gmail for their students and faculty. And it basically took them a few hours to clean up the entire email system. I wanted to know your thoughts on this new best phishing email problem and what goes through a sysadmin's mind when something like this happens. One thing that gets me about this one is it kind of shows that, you know, obviously they're talking about the, the redirection later on with the URL. And that's like tricky, but I don't think it's like, you know, mind blowing. The thing that gets me is so much of the effectiveness of these is literally just art direction. I feel like of some of like the, you know, the images that they're using. Do you know what I mean? The, the tech, I mean, obviously the actual malware that they're, that they're pushing could be pretty high tech, but like the, you know, using the redirection and whatnot isn't too crazy. The thing that's making people fall for it is just that like the design looks most closely like Gmail design. And I think that's what kind of gets me is, is it's totally playing to the social engineering side of it. I agree. And a lot of these, they're really based around things that people want. Like there's been a lot of scams lately. So around Christmas, when everyone's getting packages, I got an unending number of, hey, we had trouble delivering your package. Can you do this? And it was just an epidemic. And then the Nintendo Classic, that little tiny Nintendo was out. And there were a lot of scams about that. Like, hey, download this file and we'll put you into the waiting list to get the... And it's exactly what you're saying, Forrest. It's the social engineering aspect of it, like trying to like catch on to what people want. Microsoft Silverlight was used for a lot of times for Netflix. That was like one of the big only uses of Microsoft Silverlight. So uh, maybe people are used to it and like, oh, I can't watch my Netflix without this. So they install it. But I almost fell for a PayPal one many years ago. And here you are today on a security podcast. <laughs> yeah. So another school with a story is an IT guy. He was let go and he was allegedly the school thinks that he changed the password to a Google account that stored email and coursework for over 2000 students. And then he said that, OK, I'll help you restore that account if you pay me two hundred thousand dollars. And you don't normally hear much from the employee side. Um, what you hear is they're disgruntled and they weren't a good employee and so forth. And you really hear his side of the story where they needed to either move to another location and to work there. As a compassionate parent, I wanted to know what your thoughts are on this. So much of this particular story, I think, really depends upon the details of it. And I don't know if we can for sure sort of pass judgment on either side of this. From the employee's standpoint, it, it sounds like it was a very acrimonious situation where he was leaving. He didn't want to leave. He didn't want to be relocated for all of that. 
And it then really hinges upon, well, he left this password in a password manager or some other way on a machine, which he turned in. And he says that they wiped the machine and it doesn't have any of that information anymore. So therefore they can't access these accounts. And that's plausible. <laughs> that's not, that's not a crazy situation that couldn't occur, but it's also, you know, just as likely that it's the other way. And he did something and, you know, left them in this bad situation. Uh, and he's not trying to extort them for this. He's basically saying like, oh, well, if you want me to come in and work and like fix all these issues, I require $200,000 and a you know letter of reference. His ask might be a bit much. I wonder if it was only like a day rate of $2,000 <laughs> if, if this wouldn't be news and if this wouldn't be an issue. I think with this one too, uh, yeah, without getting into to sides, I think there were probably poor choices made on all fronts. For example, having one master you know, Google account run by some single employee at the organization, as opposed to having an organizational account tied to the business as a whole. And I've seen this a lot of times where different software vendors will, will require it tied to a certain account or individual, and they won't accept it unless it is. And then in the long run, it ends up becoming much more of a problem. Now on Google side of it too, I actually absolutely agree with them not going ahead right away and just resetting the password because we just talked about, you know, phishing scams and other cyber criminals. It would be very, very easy to try and social engineer Google to allow you into an organization's account to do what you will, really. I think what's, you know, if we're trying to draw like a lesson from this, I think it's that things have gotten a lot more challenging as more and more places are using lots of like little SaaS services and lots of different cloud-based, you know, things that are all tied together that people are using for their work and trying to manage that and trying to manage that in a coherent way with IT is a really big challenge. It's not just like, oh, they left and so you go into Active Directory and disable their account. You know, it's it's a much more involved thing. There's a few services now that will help with that, both the onboarding and then, you know, turning off of people's access. But it's still a real challenge and something to really think about. And I think the situation becomes even more difficult, especially dealing with smaller shops where by necessity, one individual has to wear many hats. And I think as part of that article, they said too, the other handful of people that were IT staff at the organization decided to all resign because they didn't want to relocate. So maybe another lesson there is, I mean, always have a backup. If everybody at the same time is put into the same situation to leave it with a single point of failure, maybe the lesson is handle that a little bit better. Don't try and relocate all your staff at one time. It's just inviting problems if there's a, a high potential they don't want to relocate. I kind of view this as like a disaster recovery thing. Like we think of disaster recovery as like, oh, the building got hit by lightning or it's a flood or, you know, some sort of attack. But there's all sorts of things that happen. <laughs> and, you know, this is a disaster. So have a plan and stick to it. Yeah. Part of that would be, you know, account recovery for all these crucial service accounts. You know, I just... I think people don't realize how much we rely on technology and how seamlessly it's been incorporated into our lives. And so maybe the leadership, the people that are responsible for coordinating the operations of, you can actually see like a laptop or you can actually see a person, but the seamless transition of things from one thing connecting to another it's a little different and you just kind of assume, oh, okay, well, it's going to be taken care of because it's part of our lives. So it's kind of like a nice applause. If I had to do like an emoticon, it'd be like that clap. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> 
so pivot to another just fun story. I just, I wanted to talk about, I don't know if you guys thought it was silly where a Japanese researcher said that if you do like the peace sign in a photo, they can figure out your fingerprints. And since biometrics is, it's really in these days, I think it's just really funny that people can authenticate in all sorts of ways and people are already thinking of ways to steal other stuff with your identity. I think it's interesting, you know, so much of this, you know, we're talking about technology and then how it affects security. We don't usually think of like, uh, well, camera resolution is something that affects this stuff, but it's very similar to a couple of years ago. There is apparently New York, like a set of master keys for accessing like all the infrastructure for accessing like all the electrical substations and things. And so they had a picture of the keys and of Ooh. course, like, you know, 10, 15 years ago, if that was in the newspaper, that'd just be, oh, it's some, some keys. But now the resolution is so good that people were able to like just copy and make their own master keys based upon the picture of the person holding them up. So this just seems like a, the next level of that, that you'd be able to like see the person's fingerprints in a peace sign that they're flashing in a photo if it was high enough resolution and then like recreate them and fool a scanner. Actually, that um, happened even more recently with the key thing. I think the TSA master keys also, they took a picture of that, put it online and, yeah. and all of your you know bags that you can just open them up now with the, then again, without getting too far off on a tangent, how terrible of an idea is it that you have a master key to open everything up? I and mean, we can segue right into a discussion about, for example, cryptography, where certain people want a master key to decrypt all data in the world, which is just as bad of an idea. But back to the kind of topic at hand, are we going to get to a point where we can't get our picture taken if we start using biometric authentication with either our facial recognition or retina scanning or something like that? Your eyeball. <laughs> <laughs> so Killian, what you're suggesting is we all wear mirror shades to like block the cameras from seeing our eyes so we can be secure. That would be pretty cool and futuristic. I like it. I'm let me just do that just for fun this weekend. So. You know what this reminds me of, though? Having, like, these master keys is kind of like we talk about when you have, like, service accounts in an environment, and you don't want to give them, like, domain admin credentials, right? You know, you're kind of, like, giving out the, the master key, essentially, to, like, a system, but so many people do it. You know what I mean? It kind of reminds me of that, and uh, kind of, like, to bring it back to, like, what we do day to day. And a lot of times, I mean, like, that's something I see, you know? We Absolutely. already know that's, we know that's bad practice in terms of IT infrastructure. So, you know, why wouldn't physical infrastructure have kind of a similar compartmentalization thing going on? Because nobody wants to carry around 37 pounds of a janitor's key ring. Well, I'll tell you what. I mean, it's kind of a similar thing when we do, you know, password management or, you know, set up something like that. So you're not actually having to remember 5,000 passwords. You know, you have a system for getting them when you need them with accountability. You know, and I would imagine that a big organization, like let's say the MTA, maybe they have a could have a system of accountability for taking out keys to systems, which previously I'd pretty much assumed that they did, but I guess not. Actually, that's a really interesting parallel between the digital world and the physical world. I think, yeah. I mean, far as you pointed out, it actually is so much easier to handle that type of management in the digital world because you don't have the physical mass of an object to deal with. But yeah, physical key storage actually would be a pretty interesting idea to manage something like that. I think we should all get a separate key that's tied to like our giant fighting mech and then we, it like flips open and we as the Power Rangers all go and deal with the threats to the city. You just want a mech. That's all this is. You just pretty much, pretty much. Yeah. Well, I think of, I don't know if they do this in London, but in Hong Kong, Forrest, you mentioned the MTA card. So in Hong Kong, they have these plastic cards where you like can beep when you want to enter the subway 
or a Metro. And then you can also like go to 7-Eleven and beep that card and like buy water and stuff. Yeah. Octopus cards, right? That's just also taking it in a whole new other level. It's like you have physical keys and you have like keys to your financial data. That's like double trouble. Or get rid of a lot of physical keys and replace them with chip cards or RFID or some other piece of technology. Well, yeah, the octopus cards are RFID. I believe, I assume that's technology. You know, they're, they're wireless like tap cards. But yeah, no, I mean, it's it's an interesting concept. And I mean, you know, pairing something like that, maybe with two-factor, I mean, people are going to have phones. I mean, you know, I, I think there are ways to approach this. I think the tricky thing is just getting people on board with realizing that like the inconvenience of it is worth the security of it. You know, I think that's the real battle. I think, I mean, we do have some great precedent for doing that. The army ha- issues their cat cards to everybody. Everybody gets yeah. their, their ID card and they have to plug it in everywhere to authenticate everything. So it's, it's been done at successfully at incredibly large scale. I mean, it's, obviously it's not countrywide, but I mean, the U S military is not insubstantial. Well, now they're using your gate too. I'm really interested in the gate thing. Like once I interviewed that password expert guy and he talked about your typing gate, I know you guys were thinking, uh, there's no difference between male or female typing, but I mean, banks are using it. Mike, do you have a tool for sysadmins this week? Yes. So this week I have a tool for doing penetration testing. Uh, and the reason I chose this is that Andy Green, an author for Veronis, has done an awesome series of articles on our blog all about Active Directory pen testing. So everyone should go and read that. And if they want a tool to sort of, you know, attempt this stuff internally, this tool is called Nishang, N-I-S-H-A-N-G. And I'm sure we'll put a link to it in the show notes, but it's a tool for doing sort of very basic pen testing on your own network. So one of the things for Active Directory, it checks is finds any computers with Kerberos unconstrained delegation added. It puts PowerShell scripts in memory, adds HTTP backdoors, all, all sorts of interesting stuff. So even if you don't want to actually use this, I think it's really interesting just to like take a look at the readme and see, oh, here's all the stuff that could easily be done if we let a PowerShell, you know, loose on our network. So that's my recommendation. Here's a pro tip for all of our listeners. Unless you're authorized to do that type of pen testing in your network, don't do it on your network. And your network is an important part there, too. Uh, It should at the very least be your own network. It doesn't count as hacking if it's your network, right? (laughs) I thought I thought that's fine. Look, for $200,000, I'll come there, I'll take care of it, I'll get out one day, it'll be great. Leave the password on a post-it note by the keyboard, I promise. (laughs) Exactly. Thanks, Mike, Killian, Forrest, and all our listeners for joining us today. If you want to follow us on Twitter to find some of the stories we're discussing, you can find us at infosec underscore podcast. Thanks, and we'll meet up again next week. 